0: which, though I have died thrice, and shall die again tonight, as you know death, I am as unable to fathom as are you. Even the wise and mysterious therns of Barsoom, that ancient cult which for countless ages had been credited with holding the secret of life and death in their impregnable fastnesses upon the hither slopes of the mountains of Oz, are as ignorant as we. I have proved it, though I near lost my life in doing of it. "'but you shall read it all in the notes that I have been making "'during the last three months that I have been back upon earth.' "'He patted a swelling portfolio that lay on the table at his elbow. "'I know that you are interested in that you believe, "'and I know that the world, too, is interested, "'though they will not believe for many years, "'yes, for many ages, since they cannot understand. "'Earthmen have not yet progressed to a point "'where they can comprehend the things that I have written in those notes.' "'Give them what you wish of it, what you think will not harm them, "'but do not feel aggrieved if they laugh at you.' "'That night I walked down to the cemetery with him. "'At the door of his vault he turned and pressed my hand. "Goodbye, bye nephew,' he said. "'I may never see you again, for I doubt that I can ever bring myself "'to leave my wife and boy while they live, "'and the span of life upon Barsoom is often more than a thousand years.' He entered the vault, the great door swung slowly, to. the ponderous bolts grated into place. The lock clicked. I have never seen Captain John Carter of Virginia since. But here is the story of his return to Mars on that other occasion, as I have gleaned it from the great mass of notes which he left for me upon the table of his room in the hotel at Richmond. There is much which I have left out, much which I have not dared to tell." But you will find the story of his second search for Dejah Thoris, Princess of Helium, even more remarkable than was his first manuscript, which I gave to an unbelieving world a short time since, and through which we followed the fighting Virginian across Dead Sea bottoms under the moons of Mars. E. R. B. THE GODS OF MARS CHAPTER One, THE PLANT MAN As I stood upon the bluff before my cottage on that clear, cold night in the early part of March, 1886, the noble Hudson flowing like the gray and silent specter of a dead river below me, I felt again the strange, compelling influence of the mighty god of war, my beloved Mars, which for ten long and lonesome years I had implored with outstretched arms to carry me back to my lost love. Not since that other March night in 1866, when I had stood without that Arizona cave in which my still and lifeless body lay wrapped in the similitude of earthly death, had I felt the irresistible attraction of the God of my profession. With arms outstretched toward the red eye of the great star, I stood praying for a return of that strange power which twice had drawn me through the immensity of space— praying as I had prayed on a thousand nights before during the long ten years that I had waited and hoped. Suddenly, a qualm of nausea swept over me, my senses swam, my knees gave beneath me, and I pitched headlong to the ground upon the very verge of the dizzy bluff. Instantly, my brain cleared, and there swept back across the threshold of my memory the vivid picture of the horrors of that ghastly Arizona cave, Again, as on that far-gone night, my muscles refused to respond to my will, and again, as though even here upon the banks of the placid Hudson, I could hear the awful moans and rustling of the fearsome thing which had lurked and threatened me from the dark recesses of the cave. I made the same mighty and superhuman effort to break the bonds of the strange anesthesia which held me, and again came a sharp click as the sudden parting of a taut wire, and I stood naked and free beside the staring, lifeless thing that had so recently pulsed with the warm, red lifeblood of John Carter. With scarcely a parting glance, I turned my eyes again toward Mars, lifted my hands toward his lurid rays, and waited. Nor did I have long to wait, for scarce had I turned ere I shot with the rapidity of thought into the awful void before me. There was the same instant of unthinkable cold and utter darkness that I experienced twenty years before, and then I opened my eyes in another world beneath the burning rays of a hot sun which beat through a tiny opening in the dome of the mighty forest in which I lay. The scene that met my eyes was so unMartian that my heart sprang to my throat as the sudden fear swept through me that I had been aimlessly tossed upon some strange planet by a cruel fate. Why not? What guide had I through the trackless waste of interplanetary space? What assurance that I might not as well be huddled to some far-distant star of another solar system as to Mars? I lay upon a close-cropped sward of red, grass-like vegetation, and about me stretched a grove of strange and beautiful trees, covered with huge and gorgeous blossoms, and filled with brilliant, voiceless birds— I call them birds, since they were winged, but mortal eye never rested on such odd, unearthly shapes. The vegetation was similar to that which covers the lawns of the red Martians of the great waterways, but the trees and birds were unlike anything that I had ever seen upon Mars, and then, through the further trees, I could see the most unMartian of all sights, an open sea, its blue waters shimmering beneath the brazen sun." As I rose to investigate further, I experienced the same ridiculous catastrophe that had met my first attempt to walk under Martian conditions. The lesser attraction of this smaller planet, and the reduced air pressure of its greatly rarefied atmosphere, afforded so little resistance to my earthly muscles that the ordinary exertion of the mere act of rising sent me several feet into the air and precipitated me upon my face in the soft and brilliant grass of this strange world." This experience, however, gave me some slightly increased assurance that, after all, I might indeed be in some, to me, unknown corner of Mars, and this was very possible since, during my ten years' residence upon the planet, I had explored but a comparatively tiny area of its vast expanse. I arose again, laughing at my forgetfulness, and soon had mastered once more the art of attuning my earthly sinews to these changed conditions." As I walked slowly down the imperceptible slope toward the sea, I could not help but note the park-like appearance of the sward and trees. The grass was as close-cropped and carpet-like as some old English lawn, and the trees themselves showed evidence of careful pruning to a uniform height of about fifteen feet from the ground, so as one turned his glance in any direction, the forest had the appearance, at a little distance, of a vast, high-sealed chamber." All these evidences of careful and systematic cultivation convinced me that I had been fortunate enough to make my entry into Mars on the second occasion through the domain of a civilized people, and that when I should find them, I would be accorded the courtesy and protection that my rank as a prince of the House of Tardo's Moors entitled me to. The trees of the forest attracted my deep admiration as I proceeded toward the sea, Their great stems, some of them fully a hundred feet in diameter, attested their prodigious height, which I could only guess at, since at no point could I penetrate their dense foliage above me to more than sixty or eighty feet. As far aloft as I could see, the stems and branches and twigs were as smooth and as highly polished as the newest of American-made pianos. The wood of some of the trees was as black as ebony, while their nearest neighbors might perhaps gleam in the subdued light of the forest, as clear and wide as the finest china, or again, they were azure, scarlet, yellow, or deepest purple. And in the same way was the foliage as gay and variegated as the stems, while the blooms that clustered thick upon them may not be described in any earthly tongue, and indeed might challenge the language of the gods." As I neared the confines of the forest, I beheld before me, and between the grove and the open sea, a broad expanse of meadowland, and as I was about to emerge from the shadows of the trees, a sight met my eyes that banished all romantic and poetic reflection upon the beauties of the strange landscape. To my left, the sea extended as far as the eye could reach. Before me, only a vague, dim line indicated its further shore while at my right a mighty river, broad, placid, and majestic, flowed between the scarlet banks to empty into the quiet sea before me. At a little distance up the river rose mighty perpendicular bluffs, from the very base of which the great river seemed to rise. But it was not these inspiring and magnificent evidences of nature's grandeur that took my immediate attention from the beauties of the forest, It was the sight of a score of figures moving slowly about the meadow near the bank of the mighty river. Ah, grotesque shapes they were, unlike anything that I had ever seen upon Mars, and yet, at a distance, most manlike in appearance. The larger specimens appeared to be about ten or twelve feet in height when they stood erect, and to be proportioned as to torso and lower extremities precisely as is earthly man. Their arms, however, were very short, and from where I stood seemed as though fashioned much after the manner of an elephant's trunk, in that they moved in sinuous and snake-like undulations, as though entirely without bony structure, or if there were bones in it, it seemed they must be vertebral in nature. As I watched them from behind the stem of a huge tree one of the creatures moved slowly in my direction, engaged in the occupation that seemed to be the principal business of each of them, and which consisted in running their oddly shaped hands over the surface of the sward for what purpose I could not determine. As he approached quite close to me, I obtained an excellent view of him, and though I was later to become better acquainted with his kind, I may say that that single cursory examination of this awful travesty on nature... "'would have proved quite sufficient to my desires had I been a free agent. "'The fastest flyer of the Heliomatic Navy "'could not quickly enough have carried me far from this hideous creature. "'Its hairless body was a strange and ghoulish blue, "'except for a broad band of white which encircled its protruding single eye, "'an eye that was all dead white, pupil, iris, and ball.' Its nose was a ragged, inflamed circular hole in the center of its blank face, a hole that resembled more closely nothing that I could think of other than a fresh bullet wound which has not yet commenced to bleed. Below this repulsive orifice, the face was quite blank to the chin, for the thing had no mouth that I could discover. The head, with the exception of the face, was covered by a tangled mass of jet-black hair some eight or ten inches in length. Each hair was about the bigness of a large angleworm, and as the thing moved, its muscles of its scalp, this awful head covering seemed to writhe and wriggle and crawl about the fearsome face as though indeed each separate hair was endowed with independent life. The body and the legs were as symmetrically human as nature could have fashioned them, and the feet, too, were human in shape, but of monstrous proportions. From heel to toe they were fully three feet long, and very flat, and very broad. As it came quite close to me, I discovered that its strange movements, running its odd hands over the surface of the turf, were the result of its peculiar method of feeding, which consists in cropping off the tender vegetation with its razor-like talons, and sucking it up from the two mouths which lie one in the palm of each hand through its arm-like throats. In addition to the features which I have already described, the beast was equipped with a massive tail about six feet in length, quite round where it joined the body, but tapering to a flat, thin blade toward the end, which trailed at right angles to the ground. By far the most remarkable feature of this most remarkable creature, however, were the two tiny replicas of it, each about six inches in length, which dangled, one on either side from its armpits they were suspended by a small stem which seemed to grow from the exact tops of their heads to where it connected them with the body of the adult. Whether they were the young or merely portions of a composite creature, I did not know. As I had been scrutinizing this weird monstrosity, the balance of the herd had fed quite close to me, and I now saw that while many had the smaller specimens dangling from them, not all were thus equipped and I further noted that the little ones varied in size from what appeared to be but tiny, unopened buds an inch in diameter through various stages of development to the full-fledged and perfectly formed creature of ten or twelve inches in length. Feeding with the herd were many of the little fellows, not much larger than those which remained attached to their parents, and from the young of that size the herd graded up to the immense adults. Fearsome-looking as they were, I did not know whether to fear them or not, for they did not seem to be particularly well equipped for fighting, and I was on the point of stepping from my hiding place and revealing myself to them to note the effect upon them of the sight of a man when my rash resolve was, fortunately for me, nipped in the bud,